When we consider that women are treated as property, it is degrading to women that we should treat our children as property, to be disposed of as we see fit. This was Elizabeth Cady Staten, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was an abolitionist, human rights activist, and one of the first leaders of the women's rights movements. Elizabeth came from money and decided when she was young to fight for equal rights for women. Elizabeth would work closely with Susan B. Anthony, who was a pioneer in the women's suffrage movement in the US. Elizabeth's activism came with a lot of controversy. Her efforts would eventually bring about the passage of the 19th Amendment, giving all citizens the right to vote. So Elizabeth was born November 12, 1815, in Johnstown, New York. Her father, Daniel Cady, was the owner of an enslaved workers, a big-time lawyer, a congressman and a judge. He would give Elizabeth insight into law and other male-dominant areas early in life. That right there sparked something inside of Elizabeth, a fire, a passion, a drive to remedy the laws unjust to women. Elizabeth would graduate at 16 from Johnstown Academy. Being a woman, she couldn't go to college, so instead she went to Troy Female Seminary. Here she went through hell, constantly preached at, broken down, hounded, hellfire, damnation, and eventually she had a breakdown. From this hellish experience, Elizabeth would view all religious organizations negatively for the rest of her life. Elizabeth would travel and stay with a cousin, Garrett Smith. Now Garrett, he would be more modern than other men at the time regarding views. He would be an abolitionist and a member of the Secret Six, who were a group of men that financed John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. This raid was to spark an armed uprising of enslaved African Americans. So while Elizabeth visited Garrett, she met Henry Stanton. Henry was an abolitionist agent Elizabeth's father wasn't too sure about Henry, but the couple married in 1840. In the ceremony, Elizabeth had the word obey removed. This wasn't unheard of to be fair. Quakers had been leaving out the word obey in marriage ceremonies for some time. Elizabeth would also double barrel name after marriage, becoming Elizabeth Cady Stanton, never to be called Mrs. Henry Stanton. After the wedding, they moved to Johnstown. Henry would go into law under Elizabeth's father until 1843. Then Henry and Elizabeth moved to Boston, where Henry joined a law firm. In Boston, Elizabeth had a social life, political involvement, and intellectual conversations coming from a constant gathering of abolitionists. In 1847, they moved to Seneca Falls, New York. This home would be bought by Elizabeth's father and is now part of the Women's Rights National Historical Park. The couple would have seven children. Now at the time, childbearing was a touchy subject. Some wanted a boy but had a girl, some wanted a girl but had a boy, and some children were sadly lost, so the subject was delicate. Elizabeth had her own way to announce a birth. She would raise a flag outside to signal a birth, red for a boy and white for a girl. There were speculations around Elizabeth's children. She had them between 1842 and 1859, which was fairly spaced out at the time. So it was thought Elizabeth was using some sort of birth control method. 
Elizabeth would say she would do voluntary motherhood when it came to having children. Sex at the time was on the demand of the husband, with women submitting. But Elizabeth, she believed women should be in charge over their own sex and childbearing. Elizabeth encouraged her children to do it all, interest, activities and learning. Her children described her as cheerful, sunny and indulgent. She would enjoy having children, being a mother and running a house, but find herself missing something in intellectual companionship and would even become depressed from it. In the 1850s, Henry's work kept him away for 10 months at the time. This would anger Elizabeth, especially when the kids were little, because she couldn't drop and go with him. This being put apart continued for years. Their marriage would last 47 years until Henry died in 1887. Now both Henry and Elizabeth were abolitionists, but Henry did hold so, some old school thinking, like female rights. He wasn't as behind it as Elizabeth was. When Elizabeth and Henry married, they went to England for their honeymoon. They attended the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. Elizabeth was shocked by the convention and how the male delegates voted to stop women taking part, even if they had been appointed as delegates. Women would sit in a different section, which was often curtained, so they were there but not seen. William Lloyd Garrison, big American abolitionist and supporter of women's rights, arrived after the vote to exclude women. He would sit with the women and not the men, out of principle. Lucreta Mott, Quaker minister, abolitionist and women's rights advocate, was one of the women delegates there. Lucreta was older than Elizabeth, but they would form a tight friendship. Elizabeth wanted to learn as much as she could from Lucreta. Elizabeth would hear Lucreta preach while in London. This was the first time Elizabeth heard a woman give a sermon or even speak publicly. Elizabeth would credit the convention, adding fuel to her interest on women's rights. The London Convention was definitely a turning point in Elizabeth's life. Studying law books, she was convinced legal changes had to happen to overcome gender equalities. Summer 1848, Lucreta travelled to Pennsylvania for a Quakers meeting. Being so near to Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth invited her and others to the, her house. The gathered women sympathised with each other and organised a women's rights convention in Seneca Falls while Lucreta was still in town. Elizabeth was the primary author of the Convention's Declaration of Rights and Sediments, which was modelled off the Declaration of Independence. A list of grievances would be written up, including the wrongful denial of women's rights to vote. This would direct Elizabeth to speak about it at the Convention. This was controversial, but not a new idea. Remember Cousin Garrett? Well, he had called for women's suffrage just before the Liberty League Convention in Buffalo. Anyway, at Elizabeth's, she wanted to speak about this, but Henry wasn't happy with it when he saw the topic in the documents. He would tell Elizabeth it would turn the procedures into a farce. Lucreta was the main speaker, and she also wasn't happy with the proposed topic. 3,000 women and men attended the two-day Seneca Falls Convention. Elizabeth would give a speech to a large crowd explaining why the gathering was being done 
and the importance of women's rights. Lucrita would do a speech after this, and Elizabeth then would read out the Declaration of Settlements. Those who attended were invited to sign this declaration. Then came the resolutions. All was adopted but the ninth. It read it was the duty of this country to secure themselves the sacred right of the elective franchise. A heated discussion would erupt. Finally, the resolution was adopted, but only when Frederick Douglass, an African-American abolitionist, leader and former slave, gave his full support. Elizabeth's sister Harriet came to the convention, and even she signed the declaration, but was forced to remove her name from her husband. The convention would be small, local, and done in very short notice, but the controversy it caused meant word spread through the press, hitting newspapers in New York, Philadelphia, and many others. The Seneca Falls Convention is now seen as a historic event. The first convention called for discussing women's rights. The declaration they created would become the single most important factor in spreading news of women's rights movement around the country in 1848 and in the future. The convention also sparked using women's rights conventions as a tool to organize early women's movements. 1851, the second National Women's Rights Convention happened. By then, the demand for women's right to vote was now the US women's rights movement main principle. From the Seneca Falls Convention, women who attended were inspired to do their own. Rochester Women's Rights Convention was one such convention to be organised shortly after the Seneca Falls one. Elizabeth and Lucretia spoke at this convention. Seneca Falls Convention was chaired by James Mott, Lucretia's husband, but Rochester was chaired by a woman, Abigail Bush, another first and moment changer. Now many weren't happy about this, a woman chairing a convention of both men and women, oh no. Even Elizabeth spoke in opposition to the election of a woman as the chair. In later life, Elizabeth did admit she was wrong in thinking that way and did apologize for her actions. The first National Women's Rights Convention happened in 1850. Elizabeth couldn't attend as she was pregnant. But she wanted to voice her opinion, so sent a letter entitled, Should Women Hold Office? In it, she outlined the goals for the movement. After this, it became a tradition to open the National Women's Convention with a letter from Elizabeth, who didn't attend in person until 1860. 1851, Susan B. Anthony, a social reformer and women's rights activist who would play an important role in women's suffrage movement, visited Seneca Falls. Amelia Bloomer, a supporter of the women's rights and friends to Elizabeth, would introduce them. Susan came from a Quaker family, was active in the reform movements, and became close friends and co-worker of Elizabeth's. This friendship would mark a huge turning point in their lives and would be huge importance in the movement. The two women were likely yin and yang. Susan was amazing at organizing and Elizabeth was fantastic with intellectual and writing areas. Susan would see herself reliant on Elizabeth and wouldn't take positions putting her above Elizabeth. Elizabeth was home locked due to seven young children, 
Why Susan, she was single, free, and fancy. Susan would help out Elizabeth in minding the children so Elizabeth could concentrate on writing, allowing her to write speeches for Susan. Henry would say Susan stirred the puddings, Elizabeth stirred up Susan, and then Susan stirred up the world. Elizabeth and her family moved to New York City in 1861. A room was made up for Susan in every house they lived in. In December 1865, Elizabeth and Susan submitted the first woman's suffrage petition to Congress. They wouldn't succeed in the change they requested, so October 1866, Elizabeth announced her candidacy as the first woman to run for Congress. She'd only get 24 votes, but was a huge talking point in regards to women's office holding. December 1872, both Elizabeth and Susan wrote new departure memorials through Congress and were called to read them to the Senate Judiciary Committee. This would bring their cause to the forefront of Congress agenda, even with the new departure being rejected. But the relationship did have the problems. Susan couldn't match Elizabeth's allure and would often feel overshadowed by Elizabeth but was willing to sit in her shadows if the cause was still being accomplished. So at the time, alcohol was a problem. Temperance, a movement to curb the consumption, was about and many activists considered temperance a woman's right issue as the laws would have the husband in full control of the family and the money. The law gave no security to the women, even if the husband drank the family money dry became abusive to her or the children, it didn't protect them. If by some miracle the woman got a divorce, which God himself would find difficult to get in, the husband would still get full and sole custody of the children. 1852, Susan was elected as a delegate to New York Tempers Convention. She would try give her opinion during talks, but the chairman would stop her immediately telling her women delegates were to listen, learn, and never speak. Susan and other women walked out and announced they were going to start a women's temperance convention. Later that year, 500 women created the Women's State Temperance Society in Rochester. Elizabeth was president and Susan as state agent. Elizabeth was the public figure and Susan the energetic force behind it. This mix was the bones of organisations they would later create. Elizabeth's first public speech since 1848 was given at the convention, and it was that one that really upset religious conservatives. Elizabeth would call that drunkenness to be a legal reason for divorce. She appealed to the wives to take control of the marriage from their drunk husbands. She attacked religion calling for women to give to the poor instead. So she caused a lot of anger. The following year at the organization's convention, Elizabeth was voted out as president. With this, Susan then resigned. Elizabeth wasn't involved after that, but did use local temperance societies to advocate women's rights. Elizabeth wrote in The Lily, which was a monthly temperance newspaper that she helped transform into a newspaper reporting on women's rights movement. Marriage at the time, particularly status of married women, was partly based from English common law. It had women under protection and control of their husbands. 
This meant that the husband could become owner of any property the woman brought into the marriage. The woman couldn't sign any contracts, have a business in her name, or retain custody of the children in the event of a divorce. Some American courts followed this common law, but southern states like Texas and Florida didn't. Instead, they would provide more equality for women. State legislatures would start to take away this common law by passing legislation. In 1836, New York started to look at a Married Woman's Property Act. Ernestine Rose, a woman's right activist, would be the driving force behind this. Elizabeth's father was actually behind this reform too. Now he didn't have a change of heart with his views about women, but he was behind it because he had no sons and a lot of wealth. So when he died, that wealth was then controlled by his son-in-laws and not his daughters. Elizabeth seen it as a change and a benefit to women's rights, so she petitioned and legislated in its favour from 1843. 1848 the law was passed, so married women could retain property that she possessed before the marriage or received during the marriage. It would also mean their husband's creditors couldn't take it either. The law would come into effect before the Seneca Falls Convention and would bring strength to the movement by increasing women to act independently. This would be a start of the weakening the control the husbands had over their wives. Like speaking for them, this would help Elizabeth in many reforms like the right for women to speak in public and to vote. 1853, Susan organized a petition campaign in New York. It was for improved property right laws for married women. As part of this, Elizabeth spoke in 1854 to the Judiciary Committee, arguing voting rights were needed so women could protect the newly won property rights. In 1860, Elizabeth spoke again to the committee, arguing that women's suffrage was the only protection for married women. She would use similarities in legal status of women and slaves. The legislature would pass the improved law in 1860. In 1851, a cousin of Elizabeth's named Elizabeth Smith Miller designed a new style of dress. It would have trouser-like design under a knee-length dress and it would be called Bloomers from publicity by Amelia Bloomer in The Lily. Women activists adopted it, although had a lot of ridicule and accusations of threat to the social order. Elizabeth thought it was a brilliant dress. It solved the problems such as climbing stairs while holding a child, a candle, and trying to hike the long dress so not to trip. Elizabeth wore the bloomer for two years, but dropped it as the controversy from it was distracting from the campaign for women's rights. Elizabeth already infuriated traditionists in 1852 with the Women's Temperance Convention and driving a woman's right to divorce based on a drunken husband. 1860, at the 10th National Women's Rights Convention, Elizabeth spoke for nearly an hour. The speech would create a heated debate. She would call on healthy marriages, legalize prostitution. Elizabeth would claim a marriage is a silver contract and therefore should be treated like any other contract. She would go on to state that this contract would be an agreement for a certain amount of happiness and if it didn't meet a certain amount, then it would be a duty to end it. Strong disagreement to her speech came. Wendell Phillips, an abolitionist 
leader would heatedly argue divorce wasn't a woman's right issue as it affected both parties equally. He found the topic madness and would try to have it removed from records but was unsuccessful. Years after, Elizabeth would go on to lecture. Her divorce speech was the most popular, drawing crowds of 1,200 people at a time. 1860, Elizabeth published a leaflet that called The Slave Appeal. She wrote from what she imagined it was like to be a female slave. The fictional speaker described the horror of slavery. It called for defiance of the Federal Fugitive Slave Act, a law passed in 1850 as part of a compromise between Southern interests in slavery and Northern free soldiers. It also included a petition against the practice of hunting escaped slaves. In 1861, Susan organized a tour of abolitionist lectures that included Elizabeth as the speaker. The tour started in January, just after South Carolina formally left the Union. The lectures would be disputed by mobs who believed that they were causing Southern states to succeed. Henry would urge Elizabeth to drop out of the lectures, which he eventually did, but only because of the constant threat of violence. 1863, Susan moved in with Elizabeth. The two began organizing the Woman Loyal National League campaign to abolish slavery in the US Constitution. Elizabeth became its president and Susan its secretary. This would become the first national women's political organization in the US. The League collected 400,000 signatures to abolish slavery. It assisted in the passage of the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude, except if it was a punishment for crimes. The League would break up in 1864, once it was clear that the amendment was approved. The main purpose of the League was to abolish slavery. Also, it made it clear it stood for political equality for women, equal rights for all, regardless of sex or race. Elizabeth and Susan would come out stronger with significant national reputations. After the Civil War, Elizabeth and Susan were concerned. Reports came that the proposed 14th Amendment to the US Constitution provided citizenship to African Americans with the word in male African Americans. Elizabeth was very angry and felt the word male was kept. It would take nearly a century to get removed. So opposing this would take time, preparation and reactivation of the women's movement as it had become somewhat of a hiatus during the Civil War. January 1866, Elizabeth and Susan sent out petitions calling for a constitutional amendment providing women's suffrage. At the top of the names was Elizabeth's. Elizabeth and Susan held the 11th National Women's Rights Convention, May 1866 the first one since the start of the Civil War. The convention changed its name to the American Equal Rights Association, or ERA. Its purpose was for equal rights for all, doesn't matter of race or sex. Elizabeth was to be president, but declined, suggesting Lucretia Mott to be instead. Elizabeth would be the first vice president, and Frederick Douglass, the other vice president, with Susan as correspondent secretary. Leading abolitionists would oppose Era's suffrage view. Wendell Phillips and Theodore Tilton met with Elizabeth and Susan trying to convince them it wasn't time for women's voting rights and for them to campaign for black men only and not all. 
the women ignored the advice and continued to work on universal voting rights. 1867, Error campaigned in Kansas to enfranchise African American and women. Wendell again opposed and took one step further by hacking the error funding they expected for the campaign. By that summer, the error campaign almost collapsed through their money being exhausted. But with funding coming from George Francis Train in the last days of the campaign, it stayed afloat. George was a wealthy businessman who supported women's rights but argued with activists by attacking the Republican Party and openly belittling African Americans. Now Susan and Elizabeth did believe they could make George see the good, and he actually did, at least a little. Either way, Elizabeth has always said she would have had accepted help from the devil himself if he had supported women's suffrage. After the ratification of the 14th Amendment, in 1868, an argument erupted in the era over the proposed 15th Amendment. It prohibited the denial of suffrage because of race. Elizabeth and Susan were against the amendment. Elizabeth argued in the pages of the Revolution that this amendment would create an aristocracy of sex given the idea that men were above women. Lucy Stone, an emerging leader to those who were opposed to Elizabeth and Susan, and supported the amendment. Elizabeth believed education would be needed before many slaves would be able to take part as voters. Elizabeth wrote American Woman of Wealth, Education, Virtue and Refinement. If you do not wish the lower orders of Chinese, Africans, Germans and Irish, with the low ideas of womanhood to make laws for you and your daughters, demand that women too shall be represented in the government. Frederick Douglass was strongly behind women's suffrage, but believed that the suffrage for African Americans were more, was more urgent, literally life and death. He would remark that it wasn't right for Elizabeth and Susan to insist that black men shouldn't achieve suffrage unless women did at the same time. Sojourn Truth, another supporter of women's rights, believed Elizabeth was correct that all should have the rights, otherwise it's still men masters of women and would be as bad as it was before. 1869, Elizabeth called for the 16th Amendment to provide suffrage for women. The era would become split into two, each advocating universal suffrage, but done differently. Lucy Stone was leading one. They were willing for black men to achieve voting rights and they wanted to remain close to the Republican Party and abolitionist movement. Elizabeth and Susan led the other. They wanted all women and African Americans to get the right at the same time and wanted to cut ties with the Republican Party and not to be reliant on an abolitionist. May 1869, era dissolved after a heated meeting and the two sides created competing suffrage organizations. 1868, Elizabeth and Susan started a 16-page weekly newspaper called The Revolution. Elizabeth co-edited it with Parker Pillsburg, who was an experienced editor and an abolitionist and supporter to women's rights. Susan was the owner and managed the business end. George Francis Train would fund it at first. 
The newspaper was mainly on women's rights, especially the right to vote, but also covered topics like politics, finance and labour movements. Its motto would be, men their rights and nothing more, women their rights and nothing less. The newspaper was offered funding by sisters Harriet Beecher Stowe and Isabel Beecher Hesker in exchange for changing the paper's name so it was less inflammatory, but Elizabeth declined the offer. They wanted the paper to grow into a daily one with its own printing press and owned fully by women. The money George gave wasn't a lot and George sailed to England after the first issue of the revolution released. In England he was jailed for supporting Irish independence. His financial support would eventually dry up. Two and a half years later, with huge debt, the paper had to transfer to a wealthy woman's right activist, bringing the paper out of its radical approach. The revolution gave Elizabeth and Susan a means to express their views. It helped them promote their side of the movement, eventually having their side being made into an organisation. Elizabeth wouldn't pay the debt of $10,000 for the newspaper. Susan, who wasn't as wealthy as Elizabeth, took on the debt repaying it by doing paid speaking tours. May 1869, just two days after the final meeting of the era, Elizabeth and Susan created the National Women's Suffrage Association, NWSA. Elizabeth would be president, and six months after, Lucy Stone, along with other for others, formed a rival to the NWSA called the American Women's Suffrage Association, AWSA. They were much larger and better funded. We know the straw to break the camel's back was down to the 15th Amendment for the split, but the two groups had a lot of differences in views. NWSA wasn't politically tied, while AWSA was closely tied to the Republican Party. NWSA primarily aimed was winning suffrage at national level, while AWSA aimed state by state. NWSA would work on a wider range of women's issues like divorce, reform and equal pay for women. Elizabeth wanted a limited number of members for the new organisation, but this was turned down. Elizabeth wasn't a fan of the organisation work. She felt it hindered time she would be using studying, thinking and writing. She pleaded with Susan to arrange NWSA first confession, so she wouldn't have to, but Susan declined. Elizabeth rarely attended, 4 out of 15 from 1817 to 1879, and that was only because she had to. This would leave Susan basically in charge of NWSA. 1871, NWSA adopted what was to be known as the New Departure Strategy. This would encourage women to go and vote and if denied, they were to file lawsuits. Susan would actually achieve to cast a vote in 1872, but from it she was arrested and found guilty and it was a hugely publicised trial. In 1880, Elizabeth tried to vote, but was refused, so instead she just threw the vote at the officials. In May 1882, Elizabeth and her daughter Harriet went to Europe and didn't return for 18 months. While there, she gave many speeches and even wrote for American newspapers. Susan joined her in England March 1883.
they would travel and meet leaders of Europe's women's movement, laying the groundwork for an international women's organisation. November 1883, Elizabeth and Susan finally returned to the US. In 1888, Washington, the NWSA hosted delegates from 53 women's organisations from nine countries to form the organisation Elizabeth and Susan were working for. It was called the International Council of Women or ICW, which is still active today. October 1886, Elizabeth once again went to Europe to visit her children. While away, her husband Henry died in 1887. She returned March 1888, just in time for our founding meeting of ICW. Elizabeth was to deliver a very important speech at this meeting, which she had yet to write. When Susan found out, she basically made Elizabeth stay in her hotel room until it was written. The convention succeeded in getting more publicity and respect to the movement. President Grover Cleveland honoured the delegates by inviting them to a reception at the White House. In 1890, NWSA and AWSA merged to create the National American Woman Suffrage Association, NAWSA. Susan would assist Elizabeth to be its president, but Elizabeth wasn't very comfortable with the direction the new organization was going. Elizabeth would accept, but the next day she sailed to England to visit her daughter and would stay away for 18 months, leaving Susan as intern president. In 1892, Elizabeth refused re-election, so Susan was then elected president. 1892, Elizabeth delivered a speech known as the Solitude of Self, which is considered her best speech. In it, she said women must develop themselves, acquiring an education and nourishing an inner strength, a belief in themselves. In 1895, Elizabeth published the Woman's Bible. It was a provocative examination of the Bible that questions its status as the Word of God and attacked how it was being used against women, making them an inferior status. A second volume of this was published in 1898. The book was a huge storm of controversy that affected the entire women's rights movement. 1896 at NAWSA convention, Rachel Foster Avery would verbally attack the woman's Bible. Rachel argued for them to distance the organization from the book. Susan would try to prevent this, but it was past 53 to 41. Elizabeth would become iced out of the suffrage movement, becoming lowly regarded by the younger leaders. In her later years, Elizabeth became interested in efforts to create cooperative communities and workplaces. 1898, she published her memoirs. She died in 1902 on October 26th, 18 years before women achieved the right to vote in the US with the 19th Amendment. She directed her brain to be donated to Cornell University for scientific study, but these wishes weren't done. She is commemorated along with Lucretia Mott and Susan B. Anthony in 1921 with a sculpture, which is in the U.S. Capitol. 
it was in the crypt until 1997 and then moved to US capital Rotunda. Thanks for listening. Next time I'll be looking at the flu pandemic of 1968, also known as the Hong Kong flu, killing between one to four million people. It is amongst the deadliest pandemics in history. Until then, this was the good, the bad, and the pure evil.